Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, February the 13th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Joining me in studio today, the deputy leader of Fianna Fáil, Derek Leary, our political editor, Pat Leahy, and Jennifer Bray from our political staff. Later on, we're going to be discussing the deal which led to the cancellation of this week's nurses' strike, as well as the new SDLP Fianna Fáil alliance and the latest Brexit news. But first, controversy rumbles on about the drastic overspend on the new National Children's Hospital. Jennifer, where are we with all this now? So... Recently, what we have been trying to get to the bottom of was the who knew what and when. That was where the politically toxic aspect lay. Um, It was specifically around when did the minister know, when did the government know, and if they knew earlier than they said they did, why didn't they intervene and why did they sit on the information? So we discovered last week and throughout the last couple of days that Simon Harris became aware of uh, potentially 391 million overrun in the hospital in August 2018 and that the government at large became aware in November. So I guess after this comes the question, two questions really. Um, Is this the final bill? Will this go beyond 1.7 billion? And secondly, why exactly did this happen? So that's kind of the sphere that we've moved into now. And the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, gave a indication in the Dáil yesterday about maybe some of the reasons why we ended up where we did. He specifically mentioned the lowballing of tenders, which is where, I guess, you might have a company coming in deliberately underbidding, per se, uh, in the hopes of maybe recouping some of those costs later on. And the Although I hear everybody when they mention that say they were not specifically talking about any specific companies course, engaging in such a practice. It's more a general point. In general, and obviously the reason why any construction company or any company indeed would do this is because maybe they would have incurred serious financial losses during the financial during the economic downturn and perhaps they were trying to recoup some of those losses throughout these methods. I'm not saying anyone in particular, like you said, but I'm just saying in general. So he, that that's one of the reasons that he gave. And obviously we have the PwC report, which will, uh, the results of which will come out on Brexit Day. So, you know, it's not like anybody will be busy doing anything else to have a look at it. Um, so we'll have that and... Uh, We still have the soul searching, but the big question, well, two other big questions that we still have to answer. What will the final bill be? Because we know there's a sensitivity analysis being commissioned by the government. This analysis will look at the impact of construction inflation, which beyond next July, uh, for in terms of the National Children's Hospital, anything beyond 4%, it'll have to absorb. That's potentially significant. So we'll look at that. Also, there is talk of potential increase in design fees. So we're far from out of the woods on that yet. The second big question that hasn't been answered, what exact projects will suffer as a result of the money that the government had to find this 100 million euro? We still don't know. Pascal Donoghue was quite willy on it. Um, so we need to get answers to that. That's where we're at. And let, let, we'll get into a couple of those a little bit more, Dara. But first of all, just... Um from what Jennifer's saying there, she seems to be saying that the debate has moved on from this question of when Simon Harris knew and when he communicated that information both to the Dáil and to, uh, to to his cabinet colleagues. Have we moved on from that now? Well, he gave his apology yesterday. Uh, he specifically directed the apology to Barry Cohen, who asked the question in September. And, um, you know, he made a nod towards the fact that he misled the Dáil. 
Um, you know, but I think the focus needs to be here on how much this is going to cost. There's actually a really good piece by Michael Harty in your paper today uh, in his position as chairman of the health committee who's had to sit through hours and hours of hearings on this. Um, he is of the opinion that it's going to cost an awful lot more based on what he has heard at those meetings. Uh, he and many people who are expert actually in construction have pointed out that one of the key flaws in this project is the fact that the construction contract was signed before the final design was actually tied down, which does, seems to make complete ridiculousness that uh, a, a contract was brought on site before the final design was uh, tied down. And when you see stories that sprinklers weren't fully included, um, that there was extra money for medical equipment, extra money for clinical equipment. I mean, for God's sake, you're built in a hospital. One would assume that all of this would have been tied down. And has there been any explanation of a, a kind of a rationale for that in, in, in any way, Pat? I mean, I know there was this two-stage process. There's the... <coughs> The, the underground element, the foundation building and that. and So that the, the whole project was split into two phases. Does, does that have anything to do with that? I really don't know uh, it is the answer. I know people are saying it, uh, that, it, that it did, but I don't know the extent to which that is simply a deflection exercise. And I think one of the things about that is we are deep into the the undergrowth and the thickets of government tendering, which is a complicated enough business uh, at, uh, at the end of the day. And some of these questions will be answered perhaps by Simon Harris when he gets up in the doll this evening and is questioned by, uh, by, opposition, uh, by opposition TDs. Some of them won't be answered until such time as we see the, uh, the PwC report uh, in, into this, but I, I, I think there are, I, I, I think there are two outstanding questions, uh, uh, thematic questions, which remain about this. The first is the who, as, as, as Jennifer called it, the, the, the who knew what and when, and the need for the government and for Simon Harris to deal satisfactorily with that. Now there is a story that is consistent, but whether or not it is credible. I think is something that will be tested by opposition TD. So just tell us what that story is. So the story that Simon Harris became aware of in general terms uh, of, of an overrun last summer, although as Jennifer has reported, uh, it, it was in some quite specific terms as well. And that that information, despite the fact it was in the Department of Health, was not passed on to the Department of Public Expenditure. And if if that is true, why that is so and what was the attitude of the Department of Public Expenditure subsequent to that? Because don't forget when this uh, overrun was identified and that knowledge was in the Department of Health last summer, they were deep in a battle with the Department of Public Expenditure for more money. And was it the case that this overspend was concealed from the Department of Public Expenditure in order to make, uh, in, in order not to weaken the hand of the Department of Health. Partic particularly if, as, as some so, have reported, there was a bad relationship between those two departments. There was certainly, and I've written oodles of stories of this over the years, there was certainly a high degree of institutional suspicion in the Department of Public Expenditure that the Department of Health was not capable of managing uh, budgets. And if this had been thrown into the mix last summer and last autumn during budget discussions... What effect would it have had? So was that was that decision not to tell the centre and purse string holding part of government uh, a, a deliberate one? So in and a way, when Jennifer, when, when Simon Harris 
uh, gave as his reason for not immediately going to the Department of Public Expenditure about this issue in the, in the in the weeks leading up to the budget because he said it had nothing to do with the budget because it was a capital allocation which didn't actually relate to decisions which would be which would be made uh, in 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 last year's budget. It's actually what Pat is suggesting is it's the opposite of that. It's because of his concerns and the impact of the budget negotiations, perhaps, that that information wasn't transmitted. Yeah, this is the big question. And I think the the government, in a way, has been very keen to point out how shocked they are and how in disbelief they were and how it was one of the most harrowing decisions they ever had to make, et cetera, et cetera. While on the other hand, saying it's OK, it's not really a big issue. So they're, they're kind of speaking out both sides of their mouth. And that, for example, Pascal Donoghue will say nothing's being cut, everything's being reprofiled. And it wouldn't have mattered if you brought this to me in the budget. And yet he will sit in a committee and say, it would have been really helpful if I had known this earlier. Well, why would it have been helpful? Either it would have been helpful or it wouldn't. Either there was a reason why he needed to know or there wasn't. And I think it's this kind of saying these things and then kind of speaking at the other side of your mouth that's confusing. And I think the relationship between the two departments seems to have... I wouldn't say rapidly deteriorated because obviously... It's already pretty bad. It is already pretty bad. But the documents clearly showed that... In November, late November, way after anybody became aware of the final cost, senior officials in the Department of Public Expenditure were writing to senior officials in health and they were saying, this is the first concrete information you've given us about a very significant budgetary overrun. You never mentioned this in the budgetary estimates. So if they're highlighting this as an issue, then clearly it's an issue. Dara? Yeah, look, I mean, it's pretty clear there's a bad relationship between deeper and health. There's probably a bad relationship between deeper and most departments. Um, not, in a way, that perhaps should, not, should be the relationship, given, given what their role is. the seriousness of it. But, They're um, supposed to be also, the deeper were Health did request meetings with deeper over a period of time, and they weren't mm-hmm. like, those requests weren't acknowledged. My concern, though, but is there's a nonchalance. There's a, what, if I was in deeper and got an email from the Department of Health looking for a meeting, I'd have said, yeah, we better, because these guys have track record. There is an nonchalance of government about this, though, and I think Jen touched, oh, it'll be fine, we're still going to get a hospital. You know, even last night in our debate, Michael Darcy was at, Pascal Lennon this morning was a bit, you're still going to get a hospital. But what does it say about the government's ability to manage capital projects? So we have the National Broadband Plan uh, about to hit the decks. Uh, how much is that going to run over uh, if they haven't learned the lessons of this? Ireland 2040, it's a €40 billion euro major infrastructure plan. How are they going to make sure that comes in on budget, comes in on, to use their phrase, profile, if they're not willing to learn the lessons or to take on board the lessons from this? Said they're shrugging their shoulders, say, oh yeah, we're still going to get a really cool hospital. And that is my frustration, that they're not willing, Fine Gael are not willing to take on the lessons uh, of what's happened here, not willing to make changes to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Well, let's have a listen to what Pascal Dunne had to say uh, yesterday on that very subject. First, government will now no longer pre-commit to very major bespoke projects until and unless we have clarity on the tendered cost. Second, in the future, the budgets for the very largest projects will include a significant premium for future risk. Third, we will link payments to advisory firms to clearer performance standards. Fourth, we will explore new mechanisms for the management and recording of performance on projects. I mean, no longer commit to projects. Does that mean they're not going to cut the ribbon or they're not going to go get all the cameras down to cut the ribbon on a project that's That's 17 different announcements of the same Does future risk include ministerial incompetence uh, or departmental incompetence in terms of rolling out a contract and supervising a project? I mean, that's just piff piff paff. I was at that that, uh, uh, press doorstep yesterday with uh, uh, with Pascal 
Donahue and what what struck me at it uh, is is reinforced by listening back to it there, which is that a lot of these new procedures seem to be yet to be worked out uh, are, are inherently waffly. But there was another thing that he said at that doorstep, which was uh, struck me as 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 being a lot more serious, which was that there is clearly he is clearly indicating that there is a potential for the costs of this project to go up. So he was asked very directly, I think by any blinds, um, what the final bill for the hospital would be now. And on two occasions, he said that he would wait until the new chairman uh, came in and, uh, and, and, and got to grips with the project before he would see what the full final estimate at this stage for it. But it also brings it back to procurement generally. And I know it's complex, uh, but it's important. Um, you know, we've had issues here in the Department of Health on this one. We've had issues earlier in the, or last year in the Department of Education uh, around procurement. This, the tenure of government procurement is to go every occasion to the lowest bidder. Um, and there is no work done on the quality of the bid, on the content of the bid. And you see it all over the country, even down to tenders for paper for schools. Um, and I think we need a full look at procurement to see, is this focus on the lowest bidder, which is probably there because people are afraid they'll end up in court otherwise. Is it delivering? How much extra has come in across all capital programmes? And we need to involve more SMEs in procurement and make it less intimidating. Is there any element here at all that... that Fine Gael, in one form or another, has been in government for quite a few years now, but for most of the time it hasn't actually had much of a capital investment programme because of the state of the finances. Now it does. I mean, your party had a lot more experience of the years, of the boom years, when there was much, probably the most substantial capital investment programme in the history of the state. And, you know, as, as I heard Bertie O'Hearn, you know, explaining only a few days ago, ran into trouble with some of those, for example, the motorway building programme before some they managed those, to get, also get, get some control over it. substantial programmes on budget on time. It doesn't make any difference. Fine Gael in government since 2011. There was capital investment during that time. What's missing here is ministerial oversight is a minister that should have been on top of the brief. This is the biggest capital. They keep telling us the biggest capital investment in the current programme. Somebody should have been sitting on that. As soon as there was a problem, alarm bells should have gone off. But, you know, all those, all these ministers worried about getting down there in their yellow jackets, hard hats, with a or a scissor to cut the ribbon. Uh, and while they were cutting the ribbon, the budget was going skew ways. So focus on the budget and not on the spin. Because there were an awful lot of press events over the last year or so, weren't they, about the, uh, about the capital investment programme and oh. how wonderful it all was, the glossy videos was, and all events all over the country. more yellow jackets in James Street than in France. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> being uh, smart, but they all kind of mould into one, like videos of, I feel like I've been there like a million times and only one at the same time. So yeah, no, there's been, there's been loads. Um, and I think as well, one of the things that has been missing perhaps from the debate and we got a bit of it yesterday about how this happened in the beginning was from documents we can see that actually from the get-go the tenders were beyond the business case that was beyond the money that they had from the very very beginning and what they tried to do from the beginning was when it was maybe 70 million over budget already was to say well that's okay because we're going to we're going to make value engineering savings of 70 million and they put that in but they never made those savings those savings couldn't be made and this is, I guess, one of the things that I, maybe a question that I would have for Dar in terms of the, the Fianna Fáil party position is that, you know, obviously you're not going to pull the plug and if you've got Brexit coming up, etc., which is understandable. Um, but that, you know, the party is hoping to make savings on this. I'm not sure if any savings can be made because 
the department looked at this in depth. They looked at, into descoping is their way of saying deferring parts of the project. They looked at removing the helipad. They looked at outsourcing the kitchen, the, pa- the pathology lab, etc. And they found that they couldn't do any of that without affecting the actual quality of service given to children. So I'm just saying I don't know if there is money to be saved. Well, we, in fact, that's it's what the we other, want to see ourselves. More so money. That's what tonight is going to be a bit about that. The question that answers, there's been a document drop effectively over the weekend and we're going through that to see we want to try and get this overspend down. We don't want to see it to go to two billion, if at all possible. But I noticed I can that committee. Yeah, I noticed that committee. Government but, contracts operate without knowledge specifics, but without look, but looking at civil servants that committee there two weeks ago, mm-hmm. who declined to deny it would go to two billion. So that's straight away a signal that it will. And we've got to make sure that um, that there is controls in place. Uh, on this project now. So that, that has to be some kind of reduction, reduction in the scope really, of the project, doesn't it? Th- th- this is a really urgent challenge of public policy now. As Jennifer says, and you know, I've been at many of them, there's been launches of various projects, of various capital plans uh, over, over the last 12 months. The government plans to spend 100 billion euros of public money mm-hmm. on capital projects over the forthcoming years. Now, this particular government is only going to get uh, will will only get to do a small proportion of that, but that but future governments will be bound by uh, will be bound by their commitments. And unless there is a a process and procedure for ensuring that budget that, that that capital budgets on individual projects do not skyrocket out of control as this one has we as a nation will get an awful lot less for that 100 billion we'll still spend the 100 billion but we get an awful lot less for it so this is a really urgent challenge and in a way it's kind of boring and technocratic but lots of important but is that bits not of the government job? is that not why we have a controller and auditor general absolutely and that's why we want to give them more resources and more powers to actually take a Superb operation. I think anybody that sees him or his staff in uh, at public accounts every week, they're on top of things. They're fiercely independent. Um, they need to be given more powers and more resources. What, to take. What, what kind of powers do they need? Do they need well, to be firstly, involved in these processes? Firstly, from an I stage? don't see why we have to go to PwC and spend potentially up to 450000 or more to find out what went wrong here. We've got a, a controller and auditor general that should have the powers to do that. It's our view that he currently doesn't have those powers. The government says he may have. Um, let's clarify that. My The legislation we put forward last night gives us a chance to do that. Secondly, every project that goes over needs to be have the scrutiny of the controller auditor general and more importantly those in charge of those projects both politically and at civil servants level need to know that if this goes over the controller and auditor general is going to be down on top of them like a ton of bricks and that he will have the legislative power behind him to do that one of the things about the children's office is you had committees fighting over it so health were saying we want them in um, uh, public accounts were saying we want them in finance even got involved we want them in one committee should be in charge of that's public accounts because the controller and auditor general um, reports into public accounts. Give the controller and auditor general the powers, give them the resources, and that will be an insurance against this kind of thing repeating. And that's why I worry. Fine Gael haven't learned the lessons of this. They're nonchalant about it. They're shrugging their shoulders. We're going to get a hospital anyway. No, we're, we're going to get a very expensive hospital 
a cost to major projects. Let's stop that rot now before Ireland 2040 runs Jennifer, out. Jennifer, Pascal Denner, who was on the radio again this morning, he, he used the word learnings a lot, which I, I, I should just say is my most hated word in, in, the, in, the, in the modern world of jargon. It's Sherman, right at yes. number one in the, in, the, in the most hated word. It's ahead of, is a learning ac- it's a, it's ahead of action as a, as a verb even, which is my second word. Is a learning, is a learning different to a lesson or is it the same no, thing? I think, I think we can say it, it's, it's, it usually comes along with it. It usually comes after a deliverable has failed to be achieved. But um, going, anyway, but I think we can all agree. Will be reviewed. Yeah, I, I think we can all agree that there are some lessons to be learned here. And um, what do you, I mean? Do you think? Do you think that they are going to be learned? Like I'm, I was gobsmacked by. I know it was very woolly, but the the Pascal Donahue quote. Uh, the stuff he was talking about, the stuff that I would have expected a uh, half-competent organisation to have in place already. Well, this is the thing. I mean, if we're going to talk about learnings or whatever word you want to use, lessons to be learned, um, we're going to have to go back and look at the structures of the boards. We're going to have to look at why, I guess, there wasn't or there doesn't seem to have been one person accountable the government will have to examine why there were three different boards and on the main board, the National Pediatric Hospital Development Board, which is a mouthful, that this board had not only its main structure, it also had subcommittees, then it had joint subcommittees. We're talking about this really complex, multi-layered system of accountability where which, it which seems, can end up meaning no accountability. Exactly, which it's so confusing and, you know, you, you this gets passed on to this person, up to this person, this person expects that it'll be reported to government. It's not. I think if they're really going to go back and examine it in terms of this project, what went wrong, they really need to look at the governance structures. And um, This was also highlighted in a Mazar's report, which we report on today, and it said going forward, it needs to be crystal clear exactly who is in charge of what, why and what happens when there are concerns to be raised. And secondly, at a political level, the merits of learning something so significant as a potential 400 million overrun and not telling the ministers in charge of the purse strings, that needs to be looked at. It needs to be looked at when you find out something potentially significant like this, what do you do? What are, what are, how should there be a certain time limit in which you go to the minister, etc.? So all of that, that needs to be worked out. Whether they learn those learnings I don't know <laughs> Is there a bit of jiggery pokery going on as well Pat with uh, sort of going around the other government departments with a hat at the moment looking for you know 10 million here and 15 million there and then we're told again this morning I heard that this wasn't really going to have a big effect on the other projects in those departments they might just be pushed back from June to December or something like that but they'd still go ahead that all sounds doesn't sound like a great way to do business either yeah, Well there's I mean there are uh, there's a couple of concrete savings that have been uh, identified so so the biggest one is this 27 or 30 million for the A5, A5. I think is the road from Dublin Shane Ross to... Shane denying that that's Der- actually going, coming out of his budget. He tweeted, he woke up last night sometime. Well, um, he well this is what government decision it is the government decision yesterday he's probably and, unaware of the decision and, he's been uh, unless he wasn't at cabinet didn't see the memo <laughs> this, is, this uh, is the road but, to Derry uh, yes it is yeah oh. and uh, and what minister said yesterday was that that was due to happen at the end of this year it'd be pushed into the payments would be pushed into uh, into the following year but of course that only I mean, that's an accounting exercise in a way because the money will still have to be paid just as this money will have to be found elsewhere in state budgets this year. And if it's not paid this year, it'll have to be uh, it'll have to be paid next year. One thing that struck me in that regard is that the government decision before 
before Christmas on this, as we were then briefed after the Cabinet, was that the hundred million cost that had to be found this year to pay for the overrun in 2019 would go 50 million out of the health capital budget and 50 million spread across the rest of uh, the rest of government. Now, uh, yesterday, it was the government decided that just, I think, 24 million was coming out of health. So the health contribution has been halved. But moreover, there was no... Uh, specifics attached to where that 24 million and again because we asked be very Pascal Donoghue uh, on this a number of occasions at that doorstep from which we heard a clip a while ago uh, where exactly was the money going to be spent and he wasn't in a position to or where the money was going to be saved what projects weren't going to have money spent on them so that that money would be reallocated to pay for the, the overspending Because they're terrified hospital. of saying you're not going to get the MRI machine and such and such yeah, hospital the Department or whatever it might subsequently be. issued a statement uh, which said that uh, a, a number of renovations and repairs would be spread over, uh, would be postponed or spread over. Uh, well, we'll go back to your favourite word, Hugh, learnings. Now, when we start and put the PQs in, we see how there bring any learnings on how to answer PQs. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, and well, another health service uh, story. Do you do you welcome Dara the uh, well, well the initial agreement anyway between the leaders of the nurses unions and the, and the government at the at the labour court? Look, I welcome, the fact, whether I welcome the fact that strikes are being suspended, and uh, obviously, uh, I'm in our meeting today. Their executive are meeting, um, and they're going to get the detail out to their members. I presume it'll be two or three week ballot. So uh, I'm not going to say anything that's going to get in the way of that ballot. Welcome it. Welcome the fact that we're getting three days full of. Uh, three days that otherwise would have been lost to the health service in um, well done once again to the Labour Court I think you know we take the Labour Court for granted Um, they should have been brought in earlier Um, we could have avoided the last couple of weeks but to they put in huge hours into this over the weekend they seem to specialise they're kind of EU commission style late nights keep the journalists outside reporting bravely from the front but well done to them um, (laughs) on it and uh, well it's done. Treacherous on, on Glantown Road. <laughs> In the, in the, the snow. <laughs> Martin Wall has years of experience in this. Is that, that well, we never see him standing outside. He's, he's probably here. <laughs> no, no, he's down no, there. He's down there in his slack jacket. Um, quite, a, quite a lot of pushback from the rank and file, I think, uh, over the last 24 hours or so. It's, it's no, by no means a done deal, is it, Jennifer? No, I mean, there does seem to be kind of, I, I guess the first reaction from some nurses was that they hadn't been briefed by their union and they weren't quite sure really what was going on. The question of whether, is it enough? I guess still hasn't been answered. We have to wait and see what happens there. On uh, numbers-wise, it falls short, of, very far, quite a lot short of what they were looking for. Yeah, I mean, I guess if the the figure of twelve percent is the figure that's going around, and, and if that obviously that hasn't been anywhere near reached, that that remains to be seen whether they'll accept it or not. I think if you, when we're in here a lot, we talk about kind of not only what's happening, but it, you know more existential things like the body language of politicians. And if you looked at, I watched back Pascal's. Uh, press conference yesterday because I'm that much of a nerd and I could see he, d- he didn't seem his normal kind of confident self he, he he does seem to be quite under pressure a little bit exhausted and you'd wonder how much fear there is in government buildings that this deal will actually precipitate the unravelling open, open the floodgates which was always the, the fear public service pay agreement yeah and that's, a, that's, were, that's kind of unclear Pascal, is it if I were Pascal Donoghue never mind being sleep deprived and, uh, and looking a bit crotchety I would be terrified at that uh, headline on our front page this morning, Gardaí may launch their own pay claim. 
So here it comes. Government, in actual fact, I mean, there was a lot of, there were some headlines yesterday morning and that about the government, you know, caving in to the nurses. Uh, that wasn't our view here. Um, you know, it's, there's a 2.5% uh, paid cl- uh, uh, the two two and a half percent recommendation for nurses across the board. Some of them will get seven percent when they transfer between grades and that. So it's not a massive. The costs of it don't uh, appear uh, on first inspection, at least, to be mm. especially threatening for government. Uh, certainly not this year. But what the government has done is that it has signalled it is open a little bit for business. The door is the door is ajar and you can see there are public service boots trying to uh, trying to get in. So there's it. a sort of a theological question, isn't there, which might turn out to be a practical question, which is whether this agreement is in breach of or moves outside the existing the existing agreements. Uh, of course, well, many notice. theological questions of practical effects, uh, Hugh, but that is a very important one. High of course. Pro, high so, pro politics. It's a, it's a very, it's very Irish Times point <laughs> there. Darren, what do you think? <laughs> Actually, theology and politics never mix. So. Um, one would assume that when Robert Watt was at the negotiations, the Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure, probably very popular in the Department of Health, that he was very aware of the public service pay deal and that whatever they have agreed is insurance-proofed. Uh, and one would also hope that um, ICTU, who were involved behind the scenes, I mean, this the dispute with the nurses could have been resolved a long time ago were it not for the fear of knock-on claims. And they didn't, you know, in order, because of that fear, nurses were forced onto the streets. Um, so I just think that with deeper involvement at the very highest level in the talks, with ICTU involvement in the background, that work must have been underway to ensure that this uh, deal specifically for the nurses could protect the, the, the pay agreement. But, you know, I think Pat was right. When you see the headlines today, when you see who they're coming from, um, it's going to be a rocky spring. Moving on to another subject, the SDLP Fianna Fáil Alliance. I was looking at the body language of the SDLP members up there. They looked like they had been saved from drowning, but they didn't look like they were emerging with delight onto a into a brave new dawn. It's a sort of it's a it's a sort of a rescue operation, is it? We've gone from theology to saving people from drowning. This is this is very high press stuff. Um, no, look, we're we're actually having our first uh, event with them this afternoon. Um, that we're doing a, a cross table on Brexit with some of the SDLP MLAs. It's uh, going to be a very practical partnership, uh, focusing on policies. I know they've signalled to us already they want to discuss the A5 issue uh, and the withdrawal or, or reprofiling of funding for that. There will be, I've just left a, a broadband launch, another one. Um, broadband is as big an issue in the north as it is here. There will be issues obviously around Brexit. So we're going to be working collectively on policy issues uh, that are really frustrating people's lives uh, on every part of the island. Uh, and then obviously we'll be giving them a hand in the background and campaigning uh, and bringing some of our knowledge and using some of their knowledge in terms of maximising both of our campaigning strategies. So uh, I'm, I'm excited about it. It's going to be a slow burner. It's not, we don't, we're not going to do razzle-dazzle disco kind of stuff. It's going to be practical, hard work on the hard working politics that's aiming at making a difference. Pat, is this effectively the end of the Jerry Fish, John Hume, SDLP party of revised party of nationalism which emerged out of the civil rights movement and a return to I suppose the old Irish nationalist party as it existed in Northern Ireland Well I think you've always had those kind of twin elements of the STLP but what this would signify is that the that that 
the latter wing that you reference is clearly in the ascendant. But this is, you know, and I've written with some skepticism about whether, you know, a, a merger between the two parties in any practical way is, uh, is ever likely to happen. But this is a consequence of the SDLP's political failure and electoral weakness in, uh, in the North. There's clearly the SDLP leadership feels that they need rescuing. Um, I'm not sure how enthusiastic the leadership of Fianna Fáil is about donning the red shorts and diving into the waves <laughs> with the with the boy attached uh, to them. And I think that they That's will boy proceed, with boy with a U, uh, I think they will proceed quite cautiously on this. I think you will have some, you know, practical and political help when it comes to uh, the next set of elections in the North from, uh, from Fianna Fáil headquarters to SDLP headquarters to the extent that the latter exists. And does but it have any impact on, I mean, the SDLP traditionally had different relationships with different parties in the in the Republic and, for example, had a strong relationship with the Labour Party, not surprisingly right. because yeah, of its yeah. name. And there is a wing of the SDLP that's very unhappy about, uh, about and this. And there's been one resignation has, from, the, yeah, from the Parliamentary yeah, Party yeah. by and Assembly there has been a fair bit of uh, And there has been a fair bit of grumbling uh, about this. But the SDLP is in a very weak position politically and, uh, uh, you know, I think, and, you know, if you are a drowning man, you're not And what's the benefit for Fianna Fáil? I struggle to see that, to be honest. Look, um, beyond uh, a bit, a nod to the old fourth greenfieldism uh, of the party. No, this I is, struggle to see any this practical This is a practical benefits. attempt to look at all island responses to policy challenges. Um, you know, I attended the event in the waterfront there last two weeks ago. Um, there was 2,000 people at it. It was a phenomenal event. Uh, the that energy was the in the room. pan nationalist event. I, it was the um, Ireland, uh, Ireland Post Brexit event. Mm. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal energy in the room, and an awful lot of people looking for politics to deal with their day to day problems. And a feeling on their part that politics wasn't addressing their day to day problems. And also, as citizens of the North, that their rights under the Good Friday Agreement were being um, denied to them as a consequence of Brexit. Um, And, you know, we have to, politics has to stand into that gap because we've seen if it doesn't, other things come into it. And I I think we have a chance to do that through this partnership. And is the Alliance part of a road towards an actual united 32-county party? No, as of now, it's practical policy and uh, a bit of back office uh, cooperation on both sides um, and nothing beyond that. So we can't expect to see... Fianna Fáil Member of Parliament at Westminster by the time of the centenary of uh, be the foundation of the party. That'll be back to the th- theology again. <laughs> no, look, we're focused on the practicalities of actually making a difference, an all-island difference uh, on policy. That's what this is about. Speaking of theology, I gather there was a theological spat at the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party last night. Theology, we, we do theology debates every week at Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party and, and we have very robust discussions and then we move on and do our job. So there is some disagreement, is there not, about what approach to take to the current government between some members of the parliamentary Absolutely. party? Absolutely, and you know, I could step out into this newsroom and probably find disagreement on lots of things within the Irish Times family as well. Surely not. But, um, yeah, look, of course there's going to be disagreement. We are a 25,000 member organisation um, with very different views. Uh, that's how it works. Uh, and there's room for those views within that organisation at parliamentary party level, 
at orthcore level, at common level, and there's lots of different views. Does somebody want to tell me what, 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 what really happened last night? Is there somebody in the room who can do time, that for me? Time is running out on this. Uh, on, uh, on this arrangement, though. I mean, but look, I mean, d- 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 can I, I just mean, say, you and all of your colleagues, <laughs> I'm sick of repeating this line, you told us in June 2016 the time is running out in this arrangement. I think you told us in January 2017 no, time is running no, out no, in this no. arrangement. So no. one day you'll be right, and uh, one day we'll all get the six numbers and the lottery. Sorry, Pat, what, just, just for, this for, for, arrangement for. is <laughs> crucial at the moment in the context that we are 44 days away from Brexit. I know people are sick and tired of hearing about Brexit, but it still remains the biggest threat to our state in terms of our economy, in terms of our social and, and cultural links. And there's still no deal. There's still no... But were, none were, of us were know it what's not happening. for Brexit, this, govern, this arrangement would have ended now. Isn't well, that no, right? Were it not for Brexit, we delivered three budgets, we kept the agreement, and we would have reviewed the agreement in the context of a non-Brexit situation. Pat, for our listeners' benefit, what happened last night? There was a row between uh, John McGuinness and uh, Barry Cowan. Over uh, what? I think... Well, you know, there's rows at all of our meetings. Like, there's no family that doesn't have a row. And then both went out afterwards into the doll chamber, spoke collectively on the bill to give extra powers to controller and auditor general. I'm sorry, I still don't know what the row was about. It was, it was about, I think, though. It was just different views of confidence supply. You know, speaking we have, publicly and speaking know, privately, basically. Yeah. Well, a, what should be said in public? It wasn't be said mean, in private. It wasn't an important row. It was the kind of discussion we have at parliamentary party. But both individuals went then and spoke collectively uh, in our wish as a party to give extra powers to the controller and order general to stop the kind of thing happening at the children's hospital. There's an important point I think here that we'll, we'll try and corner Dara on which is that I think it's fairly widely accepted within the party at all levels that were it not for Brexit this arrangement would have ended. Is that fair do you think? Look that's fair yeah. And okay. we, but but I, the, the corollary of that. I want to say though it would have ended after us delivering on three budgets, after us delivering nobody, on all of the commitments. Nobody disputes. Well, no, uh, nobody, nobody disputes said we would do it in advance. Well, <laughs> actually, some of us, some of us did because we uh, we assessed at that time that Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, and the Independents, the three parties to this arrangement, all viewed it to be in their interests as well as a national interest to to make that arrangement work. But that's no longer the case, at least on behalf of Fianna Fáil. And the corollary of uh, the view in the party, the fact that it is a view in the party at all levels, that were it not for Brexit, this arrangement would have finished. The corollary of that is when Brexit is settled, at least in the interim, and we don't know what's going to happen over the coming weeks, but there is a prospect that some arrangement is got through, that the withdrawal agreement in some shape or form is got through, that when that happens, because that will pause things for at least two years, when that happens, we're into election territory. But would you accept that, Darren? Do you accept that, Darren? No, but look, uh, this is again looking into the future and looking into past crystal ball. As of now, well, we have given a commitment um, that we will see this through the Brexit process. Um, whatever happens in the next few weeks is going to have an impact on our state finances, going to have an impact uh, on everything we do as a country. And that impact will be ins- assessed. We have given a commitment now that we'll see this through to 2020. Uh, and as of today, whatever, the 13th of February 2019, that commitment stands. But in their interim, Leo Varag could go, could go out and shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and the government would still stand? <laughs> he could get shot back. Well, <laughs> Mr. Varadkar is perhaps not the safest pair of hands on overseas trips. I think, but he'd hardly go, he go that far. But he's, he's unlikely to be armed. Briefly, in terms, just in terms of, of that, in terms of in terms of that timing, then Pat, because 
we can't let a podcast go by these days without touching on, on Brexit. It looks as if the, the next big day was supposed to be uh, tomorrow, Valentine's Day. There was supposed to be some more meaningful amendments being pushed. Looks as if they may be deferred. Looks as if Theresa May's it now Tick, seems that the counting down the clock exercise will be will go on further. Yeah, we we had a report in our paper yesterday from visit of Keir Starmer, the Labour Party Brexit spokesman, the British Labour uh, Brexit spokesman, in which he said that Mrs May seemed to him to be running down the clock. I think that's a pretty good assessment of what she's at. And we had this extraordinary story overnight from mm-hmm. ITV, where uh, Ollie Robbins, who is the chief Brexit negotiator for the British government, was and I'm not making this up, overheard in a box in Brussels by journalists talking about Mrs May's strategy, which he believes to be uh, running down the clock and presenting MPs with the choice of her deal and possibly uh, possibly a tweaked version of her deal or a lengthy postponement of Brexit. And the difficulty for both Mr Robbins and Mrs May out of this story is that is directly at odds with what Mrs May has told her MPs, which is that she is not contemplating a delay in Brexit. So I think uh, there will be a lot of fallout from that story uh, in Westminster today. And I think it will have implications for Mrs May's careful choreography, which includes the postponing of the... Uh, so do you think that may change or, what happens tomorrow? And as much may. as one can ever predict... I think it may things. because I think it will get the... Um, it will certainly get rise the hackles of the Brexiteers within her own party uh, because what she has said to them is directly at odds in, in a couple of respects with what uh, Ollie Robbins last night uh, said, or what Ollie Robbins was reported to have said her strategy was. I didn't think it was physically possible for the hackles of Brexiteers to be risen even further than they already are. If, uh, this would be, were she to pull it off, this would be one of the greatest parliamentary and political manoeuvres of a British political leader in the history of that constitutional entity. Looking at Theresa May and Ollie Robbins, do they appear to be leaders of the kind of stature who could deliver that? Well, one could imagine political wizards like Lloyd George or, 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 or Tony Blair pulling it off. Unfortunately, everything that we have seen of Mrs May since her ascent to number 10 Downing Street suggests that she's not very good at politics. She's not very good at reading her own party, her own parliament, her own cabinet, none of which she has significant authority in. So if she pulls this off, it will be remarkable indeed. On that- Blunt, if not bleak, uh, assessment. We shall leave it there. Thanks very much to Dara, to Pat and to Jennifer for coming in today. And that is it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. And remember that you can always subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can find us also at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always very welcome. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>